This conversation was recorded in a very noisy pub, which unfortunately has meant that quite a big chunk of it had to be left on the cutting room floor because the noise in the background was just too much. That said, luckily, it was a really long conversation. So even with a massive part of it removed, it's still around about an hour long. Bear with the background sound. Allow your ears to get used to it. It may sometimes compete with the conversation, but it also provides a context and an ambience for what we're talking about. Speaking of which, a slight content note. In today's episode, we will be talking a bit about mental health and we'll touch on domestic violence and other complicated power dynamics. The radical position is actually to accept people's experiences of what they're going through. Like when you say, I experience depression and anxiety, the normal experience of what people have experienced for most of human history is for people to be like, no you're not. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? That's what people experience in their home environments quite often. And to actually accept that and say, I believe you. And yeah. to say, you know, what you're experiencing is what you're experiencing, also, I think is actually radical. And yeah, I, I feel like we need to almost reject that. I'm not an expert on my own self. Of course you fucking are. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. I need to say today when it's an evening, but today we're getting better acquainted with Soraya. Uh, hello, Soraya. Hello. <laughs> did I say your name right then? Yeah, you Good. did, yeah. I, I do this thing with names where I say it wrong one time and then I always go back to the wrong way of saying it. So I, I keep on nearly calling you Soraya, but it is Soraya, right? Yeah, but it's kind of weird because like the way that it's traditionally pronounced is not the way that I say it because I say it the way that my mum says it, I guess, which is then slightly different from the way my dad says it. So it's kind of like this sort of mixed race family thing with kind of different heritages and different pronunciations. In a sense, maybe there aren't so many wrong ways to pronounce my name as it might seem. Well, that's nice. The first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? I went along to a storytelling night. I've been listening to storytelling podcasts for quite a while. Risk and the mom. Started telling stories sort of spontaneously in sort of social situations. And I thought, I want to try this out. And so I searched for storytelling nights in London and I found Spark. Yep. And I went along to one of those after a long time of wanting to go uh, with my friend Fran. Pitched up there, it turned out that you knew Fran from way back in the day. Yeah, that's right. I went yeah. to university with Fran. That's yeah, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so we kind of got talking that way, I guess. And then I believe it was probably the second time that we went along, both Fran and I told stories. And I think I've told a couple of stories since then. Yeah. A couple of different nights. And then we were on the same, yeah, we were on the same bill for the for Risk this, Live yeah. in London earlier, well, not earlier this year, last year now. So we've just changed years, it's always confusing. <laughs> yeah, the second question I ask everybody is, what do you do now? What do I do now? Yeah. Wow. I get up early in the morning to write. I go to my job. I'm more serious about it than I used to be. It's starting to feel like actual work is starting to be a bit more 
like something I feel like I should start becoming a bigger part of my life now, which is really weird and surprising. I think, you know, this probably doesn't work terribly well for, for podcasts, but I'm actually wearing a jacket. You are. Which is a bit of a new thing, so I don't know, it's starting to be a slightly different part of my life, really. I live with housemates, a couple of housemates. Yeah, writing's probably one of the biggest parts of my life. Storytelling, I sing. What what sort of things do you sing? I really like folk music. Right now, it's kind of tends to be sort of more like that kind of rock folk music. I've got this really great uh, singing teacher, Jen Hazel, and she lets me focus on what I want to sing, which actually makes a really big difference. It has slightly turned me into a bit of a snob about singing in any other context. I'm like, I just don't want to sing any Adele songs. I'm not joining a choir kind of thing, you know. Right. Because <laughs> I'm used to sort of you know what I want to sing being kind of indulged. Um, and I've been doing that for, I don't know, maybe about a year and a half. And it's really helped me um, kind of... Actually, there's a bit of a weird thing in my family, actually, about singing, where I think it's a little bit of a... You know how you can have sort of family mythology? Like, there's this sort of idea in your family about your family, and it may not at all be based on fact at all, but it uh, just becomes... Yeah. It blows up into some great big thing somehow. Right. And in, in my family, it's that, that we can't sing. Nobody in the family can sing. And I didn't really realize this was such a big issue until I raised it with my mom, but I was having singing lessons, just really casually, I was just having singing lessons. She, she said, I don't know why you'd want to do that. <laughs> I can't sing, your father can't sing, no one in the family can sing. Oh no, you're a pariah <laughs> And I was like, singer. whoa, I stood on some toes here. <laughs> you know, I, kinda, I knew that it was like, you know, I'd wanted singing lessons as a child and years, and were like, no, definitely not. But I hadn't really kind of understood that it was obviously quite a big issue. Wow. And I was kind of like, is there something you want to talk about here, Mum? Is there like a <laughs> you know, thing we could get into? But you know, apparently not. It's just, I don't know where this sort of idea came from. But, but that's actually quite hard to kind of get through. Because singing is a really emotional thing, I think. And you, the worst thing you can do is tighten up around your sort of neck and your chest right. and your throat. A lot of it is about kind of learning to relax those sorts of parts of your body. And when you're carrying those sorts of emotional ideas of like, I can't sing with you, that's probably, well, that's what it feels like for me right now is the lion's share of that is actually about kind of just letting myself sing. That's probably the hardest bit. So that's been really amazing, I think, in, in the sense that once you let go of that anxiety, I think you take that into, your, into the rest of your life. Right. That's really important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm a singer myself. Um, oh, really? Yeah. I'm not a trained singer, but I, I've sung, I was sung in choirs. I was in the South Wales and Glamorgan County Youth Choir uh, as, a, as, a, as a boy. We sang like Foray's Requiem and stuff like that, but I, I was also in rock bands, don't get me wrong. <laughs> now, there's all of these pictures of me. It's surprising to me that I had the confidence to do this, but I'm like shirtless in pajama trousers with no shoes singing like Mickey, you know, Hey Mickey, you're so fine, yeah, yeah, yeah. but in a punk style, right? So they ended up with me on the floor, like kneeling on the floor, like screaming Mickey. And, um, at like, and that's like, it's, I guess I was in, in the sixth form when I was in this, this band I had back then. And those pictures are like, I don't know, they're like, they're like an idea of what I'd like to be now, almost. But then I had it then in that one moment, right? And there's like a few, girls at the front almost they look like they're groupies and they're not they weren't as long as it looks like no that, but it looks like it's, it's like this kind of like image that i yeah and it's so weird because at the time when i was doing that i felt so un-rock star 
but now looking back I'm like fuck it I had it why didn't yeah. I why, why did I let everybody else yeah. tell me I was wrong you're like Patty Smith but a dude right right yeah. right yeah. fucking I'd love that to be like Patty Smith but a dude would be <laughs> like I'd love that on my like gravestone that would be amazing um, yeah wow that's good yeah I've been in bands for quite a long time and I write songs I write music I guess I'm sort of one of my influences is folk but there's a lot of other influences in there as well and but, did you find like the whole kind of process of opening up on stage or opening up to sing actually kind of helps you in the rest of your life? Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I think, I think I've learned over time how to make my voice the best of what it is. Like when I was in choirs, that was fine. But as a solo performer, I've had to learn, like I had to learn not to have an American accent. I had to learn to play up to sort of the choir elements of my voice and embrace them rather than like push them away and stuff like that so I guess for me finding my voice has been part of finding my identity and as I've become more and more aware of who I am as a person I've sung better I think in, yeah. in recent years I've, I can perform in a way that I'm happy with when I hear back um, yeah. that's, that's not been the case for a long time it's kind of this thing isn't it where we always want to be or to sound like something that we don't sound like mm. and we can't see the kind of good qualities in our own you know our own appearance and also like the way that our voices sound sometimes and it can take you know that accepting that this is what my voice sounds like so I'm gonna have the best of that sounding voice right. that I can possibly have you know and I feel like that's sort of there's something quite kind of profound and sort of quite far-reaching about that that process yeah I no I agree with yeah. that for sure and, and and so like singing is one thing that you've recently started doing it sounds like you've been writing for a lot longer when did writing come into your life it's kind of something that's always been like a really big part of my life i used to be the kid at school who wrote books about the kids in the class so you know it would be like do you remember those series like Sweet Valley High and the Babysitter's Club and stuff yeah. like that? I used to write all the way through school pretty much. I don't know, maybe from when I can string a narrative together, I always have a story, a series of stories going on like that and I'd have them kind of planned out to like number 20 or something like that. And, you know, sometimes get into some quite controversial areas and this teacher would sit me down and say, Sarai, you can't write this kind of storyline about, you know. About real people. Yeah, about real people, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of interestingly sort of somewhere between our storytelling lives right. and sort of fictional kind of things as well. So there was that and then that sort of over time kind of morphed into sort of the more, you know, like, submitting stuff for the school magazine and that kind of thing and this is the first actually I was kind of thinking recently about sort of racism actually in relation to this actually because it's kind of like it's become a really big issue recently obviously with things that have been kind of going on the, in the media yeah. people talking about privilege and that kind of thing and I was thinking about I mean I think it's always been an issue but I feel like it's definitely being talked about more at this moment in time definitely, for, because yeah, of current yeah. events yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah. obviously it's always been an issue sure 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean I, I know you didn't mean it that way I'm sort of to a certain extent and I'm just worried, you know, over worrying about the audience. They knew that too. I'm just being stupid. Yeah. So um, I was kind of reflecting upon why my experience of writing at high school was so frustrating, and this kind of memory came back to me, which was that every time I tried to write about something, I was told that I should be writing about what I know. This whole kind of write what you know sort of cliche that is kind of like I don't know. Yeah. advice that's always given out which is one of those things that if you do explore creative writing you start to deconstruct really quickly that actually 
you can't just write what you know, you have to build on it in some sort of way. Yeah. What I would get told, which is a different advice to everyone else in my class, was that what I should be writing about is what it's like to be exotic in the way that they perceive me as being exotic. So the sort of, you know, like what it's like growing up in a mixed race household and that kind of thing, which obviously as a teenager, obviously there's this perception that somehow my home life would be very different from everyone else's in my class and of course it wasn't you know there's this perception that somehow if you grow up in a mixed race household it's really exotic or something like that so there's this kind of experience of being of what I wanted to write about never being okay and kind of thinking about actually yeah that's racism you know that's like you can't make the same choices that everybody else makes because other people have these certain expectations on you about you know, right, so, basis so, race, which I thought was really... So yeah, they wanted you to like, write about what they saw your race or racial identity to be. Exactly. But you wanted to write about who you are. Yeah. So, right. <laughs> That's exactly it, yeah, yeah. And when I, look, when I looked back on those sort of experiences, I thought about those as being teachers being annoying. And now when I kind of think about it, I was like, actually, there's an entire another layer on that that I hadn't really kind of considered before. Right, I mean, because yeah. I mean, I, I didn't know until we began this conversation that you were mixed race. Right. You wouldn't know that you were mixed, mixed race, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. That's a complicated thing to experience, I guess. My niece is mixed race and somebody might see her and think she was one race or another race or whatever. Yeah. Like all of these things are just assumptions that we... Yeah. get from seeing someone so but if you grow up in somewhere that's very I suppose kind of everybody looks well a lot of people look very similar right and, so you yeah and so you grew up in New Zealand right? mm, yeah yeah a very isolated part of New Zealand so it's about six hours drive from the nearest made what we, what we would call a major city in New Zealand but it's actually a city the size of Brighton so <laughs> it's really, really quite isolated, and, and you know, New Zealand itself is isolated. It's about four, four, four hours flying just to get to Australia, which obviously is a country that's relatively culturally similar. Right. <laughs> so somewhere quite isolated, somewhere quite, quite white and middle class, I guess you would say. Yes, there was not a lot, a lot of cultural or social variety, but that was just kind of what was normal to me, I guess. And so when you when you go away from that kind of environment and you start to sort of look back on it and you've got other experiences, you come somewhere like London and you're sort of, right. you know, entirely different sort of thing and you think, what's actually kind of going on there? How, how would people have perceived me and my family? And right. you know, what would their, their perceptions of what's normal be and that kind of thing? And it's given me a really different sort of, right. yeah, if you want it actually. And I guess yeah. you get read very differently here than you do in other places. Like it, 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 people might see you as New Zealand accent, apparently white, like they, they, they've got a cliche yeah. that they're going to fit into that, but you didn't fit into that cliche when you were living in that in that place. I mean, London's one of these places that everyone's normal and everyone's fighting to be different, right? <laughs> you know, and I'd probably say that most of the places that I'm familiar with are kind of the other way around, right? People fight to be seen as the same, do you right. know what I mean? Right. I think that's kind of yeah. quite a different sort of mindset to right. yeah, so, go into it. So you started writing with these kind of complicated psychodramas that were based around <laughs> Sweet Valley High type model, which yeah, I am yeah, familiar yeah, yeah. with. Although yeah. I haven't read, I don't think I've ever read any, but I tell you what, I used to work in libraries and I've issued a lot of, <laughs> of, of those kinds of books to, yeah. to, to young, to, to young girls. Club, yeah, right. Club Baby Club. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I've got 
people have suggested that to me yeah babysitters yeah. club higher standard than sweet love and i think babysitters club has kind of endured as more of a sort of a cultural kind of a marker you know like in some of the ways that some of the kids television that you watch no one ever talks about that anymore but some of it's just become like you know danger mouse right, right of, you know, institution in the way that perhaps you know things that we can't remember but someone mentioned before, yeah, oh, yeah i remember watching that right yeah so and that's so that's when you when you started writing. And, yeah, it was like very much like there was this like, there was this right way of writing and right subjects to write about and everything like that, and that really frustrated me. But I did continue to sort of try and write. But you, you know, when you're kind of going against this sort of like this social disapproval, right. it, it, it becomes a little bit like it's you against the world. And then so your writing starts to whatever that thing is that you're doing, it becomes a little bit like you know. There, of course, there's always people in your life that kind of encourage you, but it's sort of it becomes something that you sort of feel like you shouldn't be doing. It's a little bit like the kind of and I had a little bit of that kind of relationship with it. It's sort of after that start to get published a bit actually, <laughs> which was you know interesting. So almost like started to kind of take myself a little bit more seriously. So I'd get some kind of like you know the first time that you submit like a story or. A, or a poem to a journal and you get a rejection letter or something like that and I can still remember the most sort of crushing emotional experience yeah, of the yeah. first one and just like kind of like reading it and being like I'm never going to be a good writer you know just this kind of like complete rejection of yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff um, but I've had this, a few of them in my time yeah. yeah the second thing I ever sent to a literary journal which must have been at the same time as I sent the first one which got rejected crushingly um, was accepted but they never wrote me a letter to say it was accepted it was just that one of my friends was happened to be reading this journal and said like I really like your poem that was in jam this journal and I was like what and she was like didn't you know and I was like oh my god wow so this kind of like um, and then another one got accepted straight after that and I was like oh shit I can write because you know if you kind of like read about that usually the process of people kind of getting rejected is a lot longer before they get accepted and I was like holy shit I, I can probably do this and that was really like really great to kind of have that sort of relationship where I sort of like I was never doing it right that I wasn't I wasn't writing about the right subjects I wasn't writing in the right way and then it's kind of like oh wow I've, I've had two Guess what? two pieces accepted yeah, yeah yeah and that was just really really wonderful yeah and I suppose I just kind of I went on from there really I, I was trying to write novels and stuff and then I got really serious about it particularly when I moved to Sweden I left New Zealand in I must have been about 2003 I think and I went and stayed with a friend of mine in Malmö in Sweden, which is in the south of Sweden, kind of near with the bridges that goes over to Copenhagen. And he had a film production company there, and the kind of idea was that I was sort of going to write some stuff with a film production company, but the company ended up, I think he closed it not long before I sort of got there. So I was kind of in Sweden without a job, really. Okay. <laughs> but I had somewhere to live and stuff like that, yeah. so yeah. The reason I ended up going to Sweden is because I really wanted to leave New Zealand for various different reasons. And I would never, ever, be the kind of unoriginal New Zealander that would go to London, right? Because everyone does that, so I would never have done that, right? <laughs> and, yeah, know, I, was never leave, kind of, I was never going to move to London. You were never going to move to London yeah. either, yeah. I think there's probably a lot of right. people here who were never going to move to London. Yeah. had a really good time in Sweden writing lots and lots of stuff and burning through my savings. <laughs> so I had pretty good sort of Swedish for a beginner, <laughs> but... It's quite hard to work there unless you've got fluent Swedish because of the way that their labor laws work. They don't really have any jobs. We don't 
you know, you can get away with not speaking Swedish, which is really good, actually. I think it's a really good way to structure your labour laws, but it ultimately meant that I couldn't really earn a living. So I needed to find somewhere where I could kind of, I knew I could get a job fairly quickly, and so the most obvious place seemed to be London, so I kind of ended up here. Continued to write, and then not very long after I got here, I got something accepted by the BBC. I don't even know if it still exists, actually, but Radio 3 had a, a show called The Verb, and they ran a writing competition every year. And one year it was like a short story competition. I think it was like some kind of really, really tight word limit, like one and a half thousand. And one of my stories, I can remember the phone call really clearly, actually, and they were kind of like, oh, you know, the short story competition that you entered, you've, like, you've won it. And I was like, what? And they were like, yeah, there was like 10,000 entries. And I was like, <laughs> and I just couldn't believe that this was actually happening and then they were like, yeah, we've recorded it, it's going to be on the radio you know, on Thursday or something like that. And was it yeah. fiction or a true story or a mixture? It was a mixture of the two, right. yeah. It was about something that happened when I was living in a student flat and the garden just had, was like basically taking the house over and in the story the garden kind of becomes a metaphor for a, somebody who's experiencing depression in the house and so so whole act of taming the garden is kind of about, you know, a sort of war with this depression. It's actually kind of like, there's a bit of a kind of a moment in the story where it becomes the garden is actually helpful in some ways. It is sort of like the, the purpose that the garden serves is actually helpful for this person. And once that kind of time where they need the garden, if they've actually kind of passed through that, then the garden is under control again. So it's kind of, yeah. I think at the time I didn't know what I was really writing about. Like if I kind of talk about it now, it's sort of, I know what's kind of going on narratively right. with that, but yeah. Often that's the way I've, that's the way I found like writing to to go or creating in general, like whether it's songwriting or whatever. I, I'm writing something and then I look back at it and I go, ah, I was articulating all of these things that I only now understand. I I have I experience, yeah. Yeah, definitely, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then like when you can kind of talk about this concept like we just sort of have here about you know how that yeah. works oh yeah I know what you're talking about right. yeah exactly it's like you know and maybe in a sense like I was kind of is it that cliche to say that I was possibly using this to communicate things that I couldn't actually talk about you know it's, it might be cliche but it's true I mean one of the things I've learned from my family experiences through my life is often cliches do happen like I've, I've heard many cliche phrases in my in my childhood that I thought you know were, were too, like they annoy me because they're too cliche to use in fiction. Like like I would have liked more in, if if I was going to have traumas like I, I would have liked more interesting one like more interestingly expressed stuff. But instead I, I I'm stuck with the, the cliche. But yeah, I, I'm not sure I fully understand. Well, okay, so. So things like, I was told you ruined Christmas, right? Which is a oh, cliche. Yeah. Or I was told I wish I'd never had you. That's yeah, the yeah, thing. Yeah. Like, and it's like, God, if, you're gonna, if that's going to happen, I'd like it to be something a bit more snappy, like some good dialogue rather than like actual cliches I've seen in films. I have to, every time I hear it in a film, I have to bloody go, oh, right, I remember that experience every time someone uses that line, you know. But I guess it's like, that's how our lives work, right? We in times of trauma often speaking cliches because we've seen so many cliches that that's what we that's what we draw on maybe yeah I don't know and do you think there's a thing as well where like we see things as being more kind of trite more predictable more uninteresting because of the fact that they happen to us yes 
definitely. There's definitely that. And there's also this thing of like when something real. I don't know if this has ever happened. To, I, I did creative writing at university, and and I was always having these experiences with the tutor, where the tutor. And I, I understand what she meant now, but where I would write something and it would be based on something real, and she would be like, "That's not believable." And then you're like, "How do I make?" real things believable to people through oh, fiction. This drives me nuts. Right. This thing that always happens where you write about something that is absolutely true and people don't believe it. Right. And it's like, you know, I've had things happen like in, in therapy sessions and like, you know, like a therapist has said to me, if you hadn't just been sitting here in this therapy session and told me this story, I would have thought someone had made it up. Mm. That can't possibly have happened. You know, and it's just like, yeah. Right. <laughs> Sometimes, Again, another cliche, right? The yeah. truth is stranger than fiction. Sometimes you know, reality is too narratively perfect. Yeah. And so people don't trust it yeah. um, because it, it, it looks like it was perfectly constructed and we actually want a little bit of, of messiness in, in, in fiction sometimes because when it yeah. looks too perfect, it looks too constructed. Life just goes the way it goes. You can't help it. Yeah, this is very true. I mean, I should say, to explain to the listeners, we're in a, in a bar late at, re- relatively late at night, which is why we have this kind of ambience around us, which I, I'm quite enjoying. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah. It's quite um, it's quite beautiful, actually. There's uh, some sort of vines climbing around the walls. This is true. Kind of like fairy light. Well, not really fairy lights, more like kind of uh, gala globes. Yeah, we're in Shoreditch, where everything is very pretty and artisan and delightful and there's and a big tree a in the of the room yeah there is there's it a tree it looks like in the a giant i don't know like a um sage plant or something like that but scaled up to, yeah. to be six foot tall right it's but it's not like yeah it looks like a, a weirdly that tree looks like a giant bonsai tree yeah. Because it's small, but it's not small. It's not like the size of a bonsai tree, but it looks like if, if you shrunk it down, it would look like a bonsai tree. Anyway. Yeah, it's, it, but it's quite herbaceous. Yeah, you're right. The leaves themselves look quite yeah, lavendery. Like I guess, the faraway like, tree right. at the Enchanted Forest or something like that, and yeah. some little pixies are going to jump out and stuff. Sounds it's like, not that unlikely. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a magical, magical looking place. You, start, you got published, you got published uh, in the, uh, on the. On, 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 Radio 3, very good. Mm. Am I right in thinking you, you edited some stuff as well? Like you were, you were yeah, editing. yeah. There's a bit of a kind of a process that happened to that, but it was also with writing as well. I did a, two plays that were, um, I sort of got into theatre writing a bit and did two plays that were on the Arcola Theatre. One of them, they were just kind of like, probably shouldn't play things down in that way. They were just this. Yeah, I, I, kind I, of um, one off sort of performances, a little bit like a scratch type of performance, that kind of style of things. Twice we did those. The second time I did a play, I gave the audience questionnaires, like a link to an online questionnaire, actually this was sort of in the slightly early days of the internet where it was slightly harder to do these things than it was, and so I was quite pleased with all the sort of technology of that, because that was about like seven years ago or something like that. What really kind of distressed me about that, and that is that I think I was a little bit trying to do something with my writing that I think now I wouldn't try to do, which was I was trying to make a point, and I think that can be a bit of a mistake now. But what the kind of experience was there was that when I kind of realised what people had taken away from the play, 
not only was it kind of not what I was trying to say, but it was the opposite of what I was trying to say. This is often the way it goes. Yeah, it was a piece that for me was about kind of control and relationships and sort of sort of abusive relationships, I suppose, in a sense. A lot of people have come away with the idea that what I was trying to say is that it's kind of okay to manipulate your partners, <laughs> which was really... It sort of underlines the problem that I was actually trying to address, but I was really uncomfortable with that people saw my work that way right. at that particular time. I think now, having had that happen, I think I probably would have been a bit more relaxed about that. But yeah, I started to think that maybe it was a bit of a problem doing fictional type drama, that kind of sort of context, and maybe actually what I, what I needed to do if I wanted to talk about issues not even necessarily convert people, make people see things a different way, not even necessarily that, but just talk about a particular issue. Maybe I should actually do it in a non-fictional context. And this came together with a few other different ideas that I was having and I ended up publishing a magazine, which was a small press women's magazine called Filament. When I say it kind of came together with some other ideas that I had at the time, I was thinking a lot about women's erotica, like magazines like Playgirl and that kind of thing, and thinking about how the reasons why they'd been done and the way that they'd been done had not been really, I didn't think, kind of taking women seriously as an audience. It's often been like kind of like repackaging like photography that was, you know, taken by gay men for gay men and that kind of thing. And it's kind of like actually maybe it would be nice to take women seriously as an audience and actually present them with something that maybe is formed by asking them what they actually want to read. So I did a whole lot of like reader research and kind of like asked as many people as I possibly could what sort of what they wanted to see in terms of like photography of men, what they wanted to read alongside that. And I kind of came up with this sort of magazine that was serious articles about things like, I don't know, particle physics and kind of <laughs> that sort of thing. And then these pictures of hot naked dudes. And I, I like that that's, as a concept. I think that's a good concept. Yeah, so that was what I did for about probably about two and a half years. It was my, when I say full-time job, I never made a, a cent of it. After I decided to stop doing it, I was offered four times, I, people offered to buy it. And for various reasons, I decided not to sell it. But yeah, that was a very big part of my life. And nine issues we did. And at the height of it, it was sold in 900 Barnes and Noble stores in the States. So yeah, it ended up being a lot. I was thinking about it being, you know, a small press magazine that it would be really good if we could get into foils, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And it ended up being something quite different from... You seem to accidentally have success. You don't think you're going to get success and then suddenly it's happened to you and then, then yeah. here you are downplaying it. Yeah. yeah, I get massively anxious about having not been successful enough. Right. Know, like, I think a lot of people do. Right. Yeah. And I'm anxious, and like, we've already touched on, like, depression right like mm. you had a story about it and anxiety is also something that I think you experience as well right yeah I mean I I also experienced both of those states I guess I've been coming to terms with talking about it openly in the last five years I've done a lot of growth in inverted commas as a person and I guess I'm relatively comfortable talking about it in public nowadays those two I mean they're the same thing for me the way I experience it it's like anxiety ends in depression yes it's like a cycle for me yeah I think that they're kind of for me they feel like they're often two sides of the one coin right and right now um, it may be like I'm on good medication or whatever's going on in my life it's really working really well for me lots of exercise and lots of writing and stuff like, like that but I'm not experiencing much at all which is brilliant great but I think it's almost like when I had a diagnosis for it, it was almost a bit surreal because 
I, like I think a lot of people do, see those things as being just part of who I am because they've always been with me. Right. And I think a little bit of part of kind of the process of overcoming those things is there's almost this kind of like there's this rejecting and accepting them at the same time thing I think that can go on sometimes where it's like you you separate yourself from the illness and yet you accept that you have the illness so it's like you can kind of move on without having to be this person that's depressed all the time and yet you kind of do that by accepting that that's what you're you're experiencing which is it's a paradox I think right it's kind of yeah, yeah. well I should own this and kind of say like everyone's experience of any kind of mental illness, I think, is very personal. And I'm right, sort of saying absolutely. that's probably my journey, and that's actually my journey right now. That's, that's not even moment. my journey, it's the kind of place I am right now, yeah. and how I relate to it, I think. And it's, yeah. They're interesting things to live with, and recognizing that you have them is a good thing in some ways, but it also it brings with it extra complications. You know, I don't want to be defined that way, nobody wants to be defined that way. Because we have such big stigma about it, though. I mean, we wouldn't mind being defined that way if, if we didn't define people in this kind of way we defined them anyway. Yeah. Like if, if we just saw everyone as lots of facets of, of who they are, then we, it wouldn't matter. I think there's know? a fine line. I mean, you can get into that territory potentially where your illness drives you, and you can get into that territory where you are totally denying that you have this illness, where you allow people to say things to you like, don't let your illness define you. And it's kind right. of like, actually... There's some kind of really, really fine balance in there yeah. somewhere, isn't there? Which yeah. is kind of the place where you can breathe. You know. <laughs> and like it is a complicated area. Like I don't know. Like I always feel like I'm a pretender with it. That's been half my my battle, if you like, or my journey. All yeah. of these words seem frightfully cliched in my mouth at this moment <laughs> in time. But I mean, unlike you, I haven't had an official diagnosis, so maybe I am a pretender. So that's the that's the, the deep thing that's in the back of my mind all the time. Like, am I pretending? But I don't think I am. I'm assured by many people that I'm not. I think it's kind of like, <laughs> it's one of those things, isn't it, about the radical position is actually to accept people's experiences of what they're going through. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like when you say, I experience it, it, it depression and anxiety, the normal experience of what people have experienced for most of human history is for people to be like, no you're not. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's what people experience in their home environments quite often. And to actually accept that and say, I believe you. And yeah. to say, you know, what you're experiencing is what you're experiencing, well, also, I think is actually radical. And yeah, I, I feel like we need to almost reject that sort of sense idea. of, I'm not an expert on my own self. Of course you fucking are. Right, and I did, I, I did a gig with, um, I, I did a spark night, um, with, which we, we did as a fundraiser for mine, Haringey, and it was about mental health. I really health, enjoyed right? that. Right, yeah you, yeah, you were there, right. And, and exactly, and I feel like, I, I, I felt a bit of validation from that because the guy from mine was talking to me afterwards and said, like, you know, my, my story rang true with his experiences and that he, he accepted my self-diagnosis, which was surprisingly validating. I didn't expect, because I've always avoided that too much. I mean, I've had cognitive behavioral therapy and stuff and tried to get proper therapy on the NHS, but I was bumped off the waiting list. Um, it always happens. Yeah, yeah. It's well, like, I'm a coper, so that's what they do. Oh, yeah, and I, I remember your story, and I was thinking about, and I think this sort of came up earlier, that sense of feeling that our own experience is not very interesting because it happened to us. Right. And, you know, that, that feeling of not being entitled to actually being depressed or anxious, you know, that, 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 that actually maybe we're just shit or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Right. It's actually like we need to 
we had a framework to kind of actually, you know, process what's going on during the forest through or something like that. But yeah. it's almost like part of the, yeah, I think you identified this in your story, you know, like part of the condition is actually the fact that you, you know, you don't allow yourself to have that thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. And, and that's the case for, yeah, for so many people with mental health issues that I know, like whatever their kind of condition is, like often they're all trying to deny it yeah. for lots of different reasons and lots of different you ways. Know, like not good enough to have treatment, right. not good enough to have compassion. Right. You know, because, I don't deserve right. any of this stuff. Because you think you're the worst because yeah. that's the problem you've got. That's sort of part of what I was trying to get at with this whole sort of like it's actually radical to accept. No, you're right. Yeah. No, you're right. And I, I, I agree. And there's so many areas where I think believing people is a very important first step. Like we are all our own best witnesses. We are our own best authorities on ourselves you're absolutely right in that respect right so you you came so you right so you came I'm this is me trying to interview people after like uh, two gin and tonics so uh, we'll see how I go that noise before was just about me like knocking my gin and tonic off the table so luckily I didn't do otherwise that would have been it would have been even more noisy yeah yeah so you've come from you've come from New Zealand. You went to Sweden, came to London because I guess because English-speaking city is easier place for someone from New Zealand to go to. I knew a couple of people. Ah, well, I thought I did right. actually. It turned out I I thought I knew some people in London, but it turned out they lived in High Wycombe and uh, Doncaster. But I thought that they were just saying, you know, how when you talk to someone who lives in a city and you say, oh, do you live, you know, near the centre? And they're kind of like, oh no, I live on the outskirts. But actually, it turns out they they do live kind of relatively near. Them. So when I thought that when they said that I live in Doncaster or High Wycombe and it's not really in London, I thought what they meant is it's kind of just on you know right. you thought it just was a little sorry. bit out of the city, yeah, yeah, but yeah. actually it's you know Doncaster and I right. So yeah, they they end up phoning around in the middle of the night trying to find friends for me to stay with because I was like arriving the next day thinking that you know wow. both of them actually lived in London. Yeah, ended up kind of turning up on sort of some guy from New Zealand sort of doorstep at sort of you know one thirty in the morning and fell into London and fell into the city and and loved it. And I think partly because. I was not expecting the streets to be paved with gold. I, I believed everybody who'd come back to New Zealand and said, it's really, really hard there. Right. Super it's, expensive, like one of the most expensive and places. It's expensive and, you know, when you get a job here as a New Zealander, you're generally expected to kind of take a bit of a step down the kind of responsibility and pay brackets and stuff like that because your your experience from New Zealand is not really considered to be worth the same as, say, experience from, from Britain, you know, might be... You know all those kinds of things that it's it's really hard, and I was expecting that, and it, it was like that. But there's also all these amazing, amazing things about London. Oh yeah, you know, it's just you will never get to the bottom of the awesomeness of this place. It's really, a you know, fascinating so. city. It's yeah. it's got so many amazing things about it, but it's 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 full of contrasts as well. Like there's there's all the darkness and despair as well as all of the light and the joy and. and Kind of works for me. I think that's really important. <laughs> One of the things I kind of really like about, I suppose, English culture as well is the way that people have this kind of like acceptance of the everydayness of stuff as well. So there is quite a lot of shortage, and there's a lot of people trying to be cool here, right? But in general, I find that in London, that isn't the attitude of most people. And most people in England, or you know, 
there isn't like a constant pressure to be someone particularly, which is pretty surprising really when this is thought of as being like a place that people really aspire to go to. I think people are really kind of accepting of, you know, the glory of the boring things in life and stuff like that. And I really like that. Because we well, we were talking for quite a long time before we even turned on the uh, recording, yeah, yeah, yeah. but also because I've seen you tell true stories. I mean, whenever I do a conversation with someone from Spark, it's always a kind of, it's interesting because I, I might not know them that well, but I've heard really intimate details about their lives presented on stage. So yeah. I'm always in this kind of strange position of like, trying to feel out what their actual life is like, but also knowing about these kind of areas that they've talked about. Yeah. Do you think that like, do you encounter people that sort of like have almost like this stage personality is, seems to be a bit different from their actual, the one that you encounter when you talk to them? Oh, I think everybody's different on stage yeah. a little bit, definitely. And do you think people are sort of always aware of that or like that no, they're I, maybe not necessarily aware that they come across as being quite different when they're yeah, I don't know if everybody is, but also it's, it's to do with what facet of your life you choose to talk about. I always think with, with, with Spark in Hackney, I, do, I tell a story every month, which is quite hard, because it's hard to find that much stuff in your life to talk about. But I, but I often think, if they hear me one time, they've got this impression of me in a certain way. If they hear me another time, they'll have a, a completely different impression of me, depending on what part of my life I'm talking about. Like, Sometimes I sound like a you know ridiculous hippie, and other times I sound like somebody you know who you know had a traumatic experience in childhood or whatever. You know that's the thing that defines me. For example, the person who saw that story. For example, you've told a really powerful and important story about experiencing domestic violence, and it's a great story, and it's a journey, and it's and you actually came to a workshop that I was co-hosting, and I saw the development of that story, and I heard the final piece, and I you know I'm. I loved that story, which is a weird thing to say about a dark experience, but hey, I, I run a night called Stand Up Tragedy, so I guess I love dark experience stories. That story is so important to me, actually, telling that story, because it's like, it's kind of about something really, really positive that came out yes, of an incredibly right, negative yes. experience. And for me, it's like every time I tell it, it's about getting that power over someone who tried to take right, away yes. everything from me. Yes. It's actually like, you know, it's actually that it doesn't matter what level of power someone's got, but what I managed to do was to actually find something beautiful out, come out of that. That, right. that whole thing would never have happened, basically, I suppose, in the story. There's a sort of a, there's an interaction I have with an artist about a piece of artwork that's really kind of profound and related to kind of overcoming the violence. And that whole thing could never have happened if it wasn't for the violence. And it's sort of like, it's kind of, I don't know, like I've turned this into something really positive. Yeah. And, and it's a beautiful yeah. moment, that moment where you do have that kind of ownership back of like the things that you were being stopped from doing, you actively do and do like wildly almost. And, it, and that's, it, it yeah. is a brilliant, um, yeah. it's a brilliant journey to go on as an audience member. And it resonates, I think those kind of stories resonate across issues as well. Like it doesn't matter if you've experienced like the specific issue. We've all experienced losing some power, and so uh, probably and hope, and then yeah, yeah and so yeah. that 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 going through that vicariously with with your story means that I think even if they've never they've never had that moment of reclaiming it, hopefully through through experiencing your story, they will also have that experience to a certain extent. I, I hope so, and that's what I've got out of 
storytelling. That's why I wanted to you right. know, come along to Slack and end up, end up on stage myself. Yeah. And I think storytelling partly is always a little bit about reclaiming power or reclaiming your own narrative. Like that's what we all get to do when we stand up on stage at Spark. We get to to tell our side of the story. And so even if I'm talking about dark stuff. I get to reframe that. I get to decide what the conclusion is. Yeah. I get to decide what I what I show, and I get you know. I guess I've reclaimed my childhood in many ways on stage over the last few years. Absolutely, and I think you can kind of never say too much about the way that when people are not able to talk about things, that how incredibly damaging that is, right. and how that whole idea of it not of the unspoken thing is is something that controls people, I think. And the way that storytelling actually allows us to end that, you know, to actually say, make the unspeakable spoken, right. I think is really, you can't, you can't understand it. Right, and in terms of like, in ter- yeah, and, and groups of people who aren't listened to, I think it's, it's it, they're even more important to hear their stories. Like, one of the things I always say about Spark and Hackney I like is that Lizanne, who eventually I'll have on this show, she's a, a female van driver, you know, with a working class background, and every month she tells a story about her life, and a group, a room full of people listen to her story, and her, her story is not very often told, like working class women who drive vans, we don't hear from them. And so I think a lot of people love would it. claim that they don't exist. Right, yeah. exactly, yeah. right. And so it's great that every every month everyone has to listen because everyone has to sit and listen. And and I love you know I, I like her stories too. But, but but I mean you know even if they were terrible stories I wouldn't care. The, the fact that some, everyone has to listen to somebody that they wouldn't normally hear that's a valuable that's just in the, in itself that's just really valuable. I think so yeah. And it's there's something about the way that I don't know people have said this before this kind of idea that everyone has a story in them. But I think it's something a little bit kind of bigger than that, isn't it? It's that you cannot imagine what people have experienced until right. you hear about it. I think there was one night that there was probably one of the stories that sort of stood out for me was a guy who had been in um, a massacre, basically. Yes, you know. right. Yeah. Those stories are always shocking, but in a good way, in, in a way. Yeah, and then you kind of realise, I think, when you, you know, and I think all the stories, I've called that one out particularly, but all of them are extraordinary. And you're sitting next to people like this on the bus all the time. And right. I don't think that we think about that, do we? I don't think we think about the sort of richness of human life that's around us all the time. Right. And how, you know, it's just right there. Yeah, no, absolutely. In terms of the richness of human life, I mean, I guess one thing I know that you, like, so you, you, you worked on erotica in terms of your editing what you produced your your magazine before we started recording you basically told me a story about almost joining a clitoris cult um which in itself just that that sentence is amazing like, that's just like the best teaser ever like nobody like you know i quite like the idea we won't explain that it's just that's just it but 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 basically i guess what where i'm driving at you know here is that i think so I've told a story about going to a swingers club on stage and one of the, the things I know about you is that, that after that you came up to me and talked to me about that story. So I guess like sexuality or that sort of thing is a, is a fa- facet of your, of your life to a certain extent your public life. I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't know how I'm, I don't know what kind of question I'm trying to ask you. Yeah, yeah, right. I know okay, it's important yeah. think, in some yeah. way to, to, to you. Yeah. And, and and I think probably like over the last few years it's been a little bit like when I got into filament, because my 
my reasons for getting into it were so kind of like socio-cultural if you want to be right. kind of like you know sound really pretentious it didn't occur to me the assumptions that people would make on the right. basis of that and then that kind of ended up having quite a massive backwash onto my life and I'd, I'd probably say I'm probably one of these people who's not particularly good at um, understanding how other people see me and so it just hadn't occurred to me that when you kind of have this public profile and you're talking about sex all the time, that people will think that that's all you do. Right. You know, that people will think right, that sex right, right. is the most important Yeah, I'm thing. getting a little yeah, bit of that yeah. these days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you only prescribe to tell one story right. about people kind of like, you know. And of course, I think probably if I encountered someone like myself who was doing that, that's exactly the assumptions I would make. I don't kind of think badly about people who make these assumptions. It kind of makes sense. But um, yeah, it definitely has been like a kind of a thing that's had a backwash into my life and I had to sort of work hard to kind of, well, I don't get so involved in a lot of um, things to do with sexuality as I might do because those assumptions can be really um, problematic, I think. Stigmatizing, right? Like, Stigmatizing, yeah. which is really annoying. Right. Like the way that, I, I don't know, people will assume that I want to have multi-partner relationships, right. so for example. So they'll say, hey, you should meet my friend Josh, and then and she's Josh, and Josh thinks that I want to become his partner, and he's already got four partners, which is totally fine, but no one's ever asked me whether I want to be in that kind of relationship. Right. It just happens over and over again, because they've just made this sort of assumption on the basis that I've talked about these subjects. Right. Definitely. And that's the thing, yeah. the, the sad thing is, everybody's searching like a lot of people are searching desperately to find yeah. somebody else that is also into this area of life and because yes. nobody else is talking about it the only people who are talking about it they're the people everyone like make a beacon towards I mean I've had a little bit of this experience like I'm, I'm in an open relationship I'm not an expert on open relationships I don't I don't need to be like I haven't got any advice to give people in, in a lot of ways when people come to me and art like that started to happen a little bit. People are asking me, you know, and that's, I'm not an authority. I'm a, I mean, I don't have any clue what I'm doing yeah, in right. life, generally. <laughs> like, like, you know. It is kind of, I mean, after the, the advice thing, I don't, I don't find so worrying and, you know, uh, I'd probably refer them to somebody who knows, you know, that would probably be my kind of response to that one. Yeah, but it can be a little bit like, you sort of think if people are making that assumption, what other assumptions are they making? They right. And I guess as a woman, it's going to be very different than the way that you're going to experience yeah. these assumptions than as a man, like, I think, I'm sure. I'd want to, um, yeah, I think it's because it's that kind of like default setting for men is this idea that they sort of think about sex constantly and will have sex with anyone, anytime, right. anywhere. And Whereas neither of those things are true. For women is, and this is one of the things I didn't realise before I started actually kind of going into erotic stuff is actually that people are a lot more, well, I guess to use a phrase that I personally disagree people are a lot more sex negative than I thought they were. Right. That I was encountering a lot of people that do really genuinely believe that women are not interested in sex at all, right. except, for, except for some weird, slutty, strange women, right. and they're kind of this other sort of category over here. Normal women, they only have sex so that someone might buy them a hat or a dress, or something like that. Right. Seriously, people no, really I know believe they do this believe stuff. That, yeah. It actually really shocked me, and it made me see so many different things in the world differently. Like. I think I had some quite kind of negative ideas about things like burlesque and stuff like that because I thought like, why are you being so open about, why do you feel like you have to be so open about sexuality and it, it's actually like, I just hadn't realised how, you know, how 
impressive right. people can be about it. I think I've probably been quite lucky in the attitudes that I've kind of encountered up until right. that point. Right, no know? sure. Yeah, which is sort of, you know, I suppose really shocking and that kind of relates to the kind of the way that if you're a woman in this sort of industry and you're kind of doing this, then it's like, there's not, there's not really a middle ground. So I think it's because they have this idea that, you know, there's, there's this large group of women who are just not interested in sex at all whatsoever, then you have to be in this kind of little group who have nothing about them at all apart from being interested in sex. And it's kind of like that right. sort of, you know, kind of... Um, it's, a, it's a little bit like mental health, right? You don't want yeah. to be defined by any of these facets of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, like, it's, it's like... But because there's so much stigma about mental health or sexuality, yeah. you also want to... You end up having to take these hard-line positions of, like standing up and telling everybody because it's important and then you're like fuck now people are defining me by those things absolutely yeah. yeah and it's kind of something i would like to be able to find more of a balance with like because it is so important to me like you just mentioned before about how people are just crying out for wanting to express the to live the kind of sexuality that they want to live you know and it seems like such a basic fundamental human right to me because it doesn't affect anyone else, right, 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 right. You know? it's like what do you want to do in the bedroom with however many people right fucking do it you know right. and the fact that we have so many strictures around that just makes me really angry because it's just kind of like you know this is like the human need that people kind of put on top of like food water warmth clothing and then sexuality is usually the next one and yet we are so enormously controlling it. although there's loads of people who would argue that shouldn't even be in the needs categories and those are also problematic people right? I mean, absolutely yeah i mean although yeah. and although there are people who it isn't a need for i mean there are asexual people and they don't get represented either yeah so it's like yeah. no you know if we could just let each other be whatever the fuck we want to be as yeah. long as we're not hurting anybody as long as everything's consensual with and with those provisos not hurting someone's a complicated thing as long as we're only consensually hurting people but ideally that's what i want to do is i want to be able to fight for that because it interests me and because it's important to me but not have people make those assumptions about me but i can't have both and right. actually that's something that is a really sad trip. yeah right yeah. i mean the the only way we can ever have have all of those things is for everyone to be like we have to liberate everyone in order to be able to be ourse ourselves, ourselves. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's... i guess people just kind of make the choice that is you know the one that they can make at the time really. yeah yeah but i've spent i've spent a really a reasonable period of my life i suppose being the person that the you know the independent or the metro phone up to get a comment about women's sexuality and try to do my best with that and so, so in a sense that's kind of like that's an interesting thing though being representative of all women's sexuality what the fuck is that about yeah i feel like i need to apologize for it all the time <laughs> because it's kind of like you know yeah there might have been a lot of things that people might have deduced from the type of material that i was producing that perhaps wasn't what i would want to say and not right. what i think they would want to say about their sexuality yeah because this is your just because you're editing a magazine doesn't mean that you like everything like that you're your personal tastes are everything that's in that magazine. But there's one of these magazines in the world, right? I mean, a lot of people don't realise that women's erotica basically doesn't exist. You know? Right. Like, I was going for about two and a half years trying to find women that photograph men, and I managed to find nine women that specialise in photographing men. If you kind of think about like how many women yeah. men there are in the world that specialise in erotically photographic women, there's just, a lot you know, of those men about. You go and throw a sort of a blanket out there, and you probably catch you know, five guys who have a K 
camera at home and a gallery full of pictures, sexy pictures they've taken of, of their female friends who want to be models or something like that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, it's so common, it's, it's insane. And yet, for women to do it the other way around, it's, it's really, really extremely unusual. Well, and, and, and this is an interesting thing as well, because when we're talking about, like, obviously a big factor in, in what's problematic and what, why you get defined in a certain way is, is like gender and like the way we see women and like we're talking about. But it's also a thing like on the other side for men, like I, I want to be like, I don't want to be, yeah, maybe I want to be photographed. I don't know, but I want to be able to be seen as that kind of, women don't want to be defined just Yes. by that stuff yeah. but but I think that men would like, like to be option, like to have yeah, like, I'd like yeah. to be feel like that kind of a desirable person like the, yeah. visually desirable like this idea that it's like this myth that we've got that women are not visual like there's this ar argument that men are visual we're, we're visually stimulated it's, 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 people try and make this evolutionary link and yeah. sure there's some some interesting stuff in evolutionary thinking I, I, I do not doubt that I'm, I'm really into it but I do doubt this women are not visually stimulated they fucking are it's clear like you know yeah. and, and men are stimulated by by words as well you know like like the, the, the myth that women are only stimulated by words and men are only stimulated by visuals is, is problematic for both both gen all genders. When we all first genders. started studying it, I think it was Kinsey who did the first research in this area, they just asked people, are you aroused by this or not? And of course women having grown up in a society where it's unacceptable to be aroused by that material said, no I'm not, and men said, yes I am. As soon as we were able to be a bit more sophisticated about that measuring, even just really basic things like measuring people's blood pressure, right. you know, um, up into sort of, you know, um, magnetic imaging of the brain, so when you can kind of see what someone is experiencing versus what they're reporting. And you see that it's the same. Right. Women and men are equally aroused. Right, by, there's been studies. Yeah. Well, in fact, women are aroused by watching animals have sex. There are yeah. these studies that have been done of like. And, 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 yeah, and what they say, yeah. like what the women say yeah. they're aroused yeah. by and what they're Doesn't actually match. aroused by are yeah. very different. Yeah, I mean, that kind of stuff is really, really interesting because, I mean, they found a really interesting pattern there where women were. And, this is one study and I think it's really not a good idea to Yeah, it. exactly. We don't want to make, just because we make, yeah. just because it says what we want it to say doesn't mean we should extrapolate it out across everything. Yeah. yeah, you're right. But in addition to that one study which did find that women were aroused by a much wider set of things than men were, but equally aroused by visual stimulus, that fits in with a larger body of research which finds that women and men are equally visually, you know, aroused by things. You know, there is like a, and a lot of people don't know this, that there's a major imprint of erotic books which is solely aimed at men. So I think I believe called Nexus. And a lot of people are very surprised to read to hear that oh. men read erotic fiction. I mean, I'm not surprised to hear that it happens, but I'm surprised yeah. that there's a like I, I hadn't heard it was marketed in the same way that you know Black Lace or like the yeah, yeah. steamy Milton Boone yeah. imprint. I can't remember what it was. I tried to write some uh, I tried to write like Mills and Boone style once. Oh, okay. um, How did that go? Didn't work out very well. <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not a, I'm not skilled enough to be that unimaginative. I think that 
thing, wasn't it? Like it's a real skill to be yeah. that unimaginative consistently, give people exactly what they want. I think that whole idea of literature for women or for men is a really interesting concept. Like I was in a, a bookshop in uh, Brixton one time and I noticed that they had like a whole bookshelf of, of books and it said female authors on the top of the bookshelf and then on the other side it said like male authors. And I was like, Ugh. I actually asked the guy behind the counter, like, why do you do this? And yeah. he said, well, like, men prefer to read men and women prefer to read women. And I was like, I'd never heard of this idea before. And it kind of got me thinking, and you've probably seen recently, like, they did this, uh, looked at, like, the way that women, the covers that books by women were, they were getting given versus the covers that books that are by men are getting, right. you know, similar subjects. They're often, you know, about sort of romance and adventure and, you know, very similar subjects, and yet, you'll be put in this kind of cover that if you're a woman kind of makes it, you know, it's got a lot of lipstick and mirrors and stuff on it, whereas if it's a, a man's book, it's, um, you know, a cover that makes us look like this serious fiction. It, it's absurd know. to the extent, like, the way that we code things by gender for no reason. Like, we, we start... We start when people are very young, like we start with kids, like kids' toys, all of that stuff is all heavily, horrifically gendered. I mean, my mate went to Wilkinson's today, he shared a picture on Facebook, he bought a hairbrush that was marketed as a men's hairbrush. Like, what the fuck is that? Like, what is that? Like, he was like, you know, mocking it, you know, but how can you have a men's hairbrush? It's just like, like, a brush is a brush. You use it on your hair. They like, say it's actually becoming much more prevalent. I mean, a lot of people are look to examples like Kinder and how Kinder, Kinder Surprise have just introduced a girl's version, right. a boy's version. But you know, that's been around for how long? And they thought suddenly... Why have they suddenly done it now? It's so weird. The last question I ask everybody is, do you have anything to plug? I do, actually. We talked before about the, um, the story about how I almost joined Wow, they don't want us to plug things over on that too. Yeah, I almost joined a clitoris cult and I'm going to be telling that story at uh, Stand Up Tragedy, which is I believe on the 25th of April. That's right. Where is it on at? It's on at the Hackney Attic. Hackney Attic. In Hackney. Right. I know how to get Yeah, you've experienced that one. Yeah. So yeah, you're going to be telling that story at that night. It's Tragic Spring, that'll be called. So I guess this episode will go out probably a couple of weeks before that to advertise that show, which is quite a long way away now. So yeah. I wonder if when we hear it back, we'll, we'll agree with anything we said. It's always a good question. That's a good, that's a good point. to see how much sound you get. Right, it will be interesting. Hopefully I can work magic in the editing suite. Yeah, and the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye to the audience. Yeah. Wow. Um, goodbye, audience. <laughs> Bye, everybody. So the stand-up tragedy that we're referring to is happening on Saturday. That's the 25th of April at the Hackney Attic. Doors open at 7.30. Performances will start around about 8 o'clock. We're going to have an act of tragic beginnings featuring BBC Poetry Slam champion Sophia Walker. Then we're going to have Act 2, which is Tragic Bodies, which is guest curated and hosted by Matilda Gregory and that's going to be a really interesting act I don't know what it's going to be but the performers that have been booked are a really interesting range of people who are going to provide us with some fascinating insights into the complications restrictions and tragedies of being embodied humans and then the third act 
is Tragic Sex. So Saray is going to be telling her clitoris cult story. We've also got phone sex operator, poet and theatre maker Cameron Moore and the comedian and podcaster and writer Bridie Lee Kennedy. Stand Up Tragedy is a variety night where people stand up and they do tragedy. We have a real mix of different kinds of performers, all of them focusing on the sadder things in life, but there will be some laughs as well as some tears. I try to make it a safe space where we can talk about unsafe things. Tickets in advance are £5 and you can buy them on the Picture House website, but if you don't manage to get them before the night, Tickets on the door are £7. Find out more about the show at www.standuptragedy.co.uk and you can listen to loads and loads of tragedy over on the Stand Up Tragedy podcast, which you will find on iTunes, Stitcher and all the kind of places that podcasts go to hang out on the internet, just as you can with getting better acquainted. <laughs>